I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans, book of Romans chapter 12. This morning, we'll finish our study of the 12th chapter of Romans, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 21. Now, as we've been noting the last few times that we've been in Romans, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, are the pivotal verses in the letter. This is where Paul says, I appeal to you or I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or your reasonable worship. And then Paul says, and don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you're able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing to God and perfect. Now, those two verses, everything prior to them in Romans looks forward to that call, and then everything after those verses looks back to those two verses. Paul knows that what's natural for each of us is to have our minds (coughs) shaped by this age, but what God wants to do in each of those he saves is something supernatural. God wants to reshape our minds. He wants to change how we think, how we love, ultimately how we live. And if we want to know what specifically God wants to change our minds about, you can just keep reading in the letter. In just the first few verses of Romans 12, for example, we've already seen how God wants to change how we think about ourselves, how God wants to change how we think about our relationship and our connectedness to the other people around us in the church, and how God even wants us to to grasp how he's given us a unique role within the local church. This all led then to our text from last week, where beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12, Paul begins a very long list of very short commands about the Christian life or about a Christian ethic. And what I suggested last week is that this part of Romans 12 is for Paul kind of like what the Sermon on the Mount was for Jesus. It's a text where Paul lays out his vision for Christian life in the Christian community. And just like with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, this text here is a culture-building or culture-shaping kind of text. And I want to explain what I mean by that. See, every culture is known for certain things, right? Certain values, certain priorities, certain ways of thinking, certain views about family or about time or about society or about government. Every, every culture is known for these things. And so, for example, if you travel to another, to another country, you'll probably get asked by the natives of that country, you know, what is America like if they've never been there? What are Americans like? What is American culture like? And if you think about it, that can be actually pretty hard to answer. Uh, exactly what Americans like. A lot of times people in other countries, the only thing they know is whatever they've seen on movies, which is not always great right? about American culture. But, but then after you get back from a trip like that to whatever country you went to, you will probably get asked by your friends and family things like, What was it like there? What were the people like? 
what was the culture like over there? And even if you were only there for a few days, you would probably be able to come up with some pretty good answers. Perhaps you'll have noticed, you know, this was more of a night culture than what I was accustomed to. Or perhaps it was more relaxed there than maybe what I'm used to. Or, or time didn't seem to be super important to people. Or maybe you noticed how important extended family was, living even with extended family. Or perhaps you'll have noticed a certain attitude in that culture about the elderly, or about the disabled, or about children, or about government, you know, or about Christianity, or about hospitality, how to use your home. You know, every place in the world has its own culture, its own set of values, practices, uh, priorities. And in every culture, some of those things <clears throat> are probably pretty good, thankfully. There'll be some things that are pretty good, and, and some that probably aren't very good. And that's just normal, right? Well, I, what I think Paul was doing in a text like this in Romans 12 is something like this. I think he's trying to build or cultivate a Christian culture. Now, not so much in the sense of trying to uh, make the culture outside the church Christian, although I'm sure like Paul would like you know, for people to follow the Lord, everywhere, but, but rather I think Paul's priority is trying, he's trying to build or cultivate a certain set of values, priorities, and practices within the Christian community. He's laying out a vision for what should mark out the Christian community no matter where that Christian community is located in space and time. So that no matter where you would go, in the world, no matter what culture you would find yourself in, you would be able to find a Christian church there in that place that would be marked out by these kinds of things. Whether these things happen to be promoted in the outside culture or despised in it. Okay, that's, that's, I think, what we began to see last week starting in verse 9, and today we're going to finish the study of this, of this section. So let's go back to the text. I want to read back through verses 9 through 13 just to get a feel for what we saw last week. All of these short commands about all kinds of things. Romans 12, verse 9. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. <clears throat> now, I don't know that... Uh, well, actually, I, I think I do know this. I do know we probably won't ever demonstrate <clears throat> all of that perfectly, okay? Whether as individuals or as a church. But, but just think about this. What would it be like if every person here was at least in prayerful pursuit of that kind of ethic, of that kind of life? You think that would be an incredible community to be in. That would be very attractive to people because you don't see that kind of ethic everywhere. 
that would be like a beacon of light shining in the darkness. But that's just the first half of this section. And I want to look today at the second half, starting in verse 14. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. Okay? Look at verse 14. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is a great text. Now, let's start with a couple big picture observations about this, okay? First, did you notice, because we read from verses 9 to 21, that the section begins and ends with good and evil? I don't know if you saw that. Back in verse 9, Paul says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then in the last verse, in verse 21, Paul says, And don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul begins with a call to hate evil and cling to what's good, and then he ends with a call not just to resist evil, but to actually overcome evil with what is good. And then second, do you notice again how many commands Paul gives in this text? Okay, last week there were 13 short commands, most of about three to five words each. In our text today, Paul will develop some a little more than he did in the previous verses, but he still covers a lot of ground. There are over 15 commands in these verses. Okay? So you got like close to 30 in this one section. Okay? But there is a difference between today's text and last week's. I think last week, when we looked at it, the commands are pretty loosely connected. You know, it's, maybe you can see like a relationship between like one or two of them. But kind of shotgun, Paul's just covering all kinds of ground. But in the text today, I think pretty much all 15 plus commands relate to two things primarily. What are those two big themes? You look down at the text and maybe you see it. Okay, the text today is primarily about being unified with each other in the church and about being gracious toward our enemies. So take another look so you can see that. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> Clearly begins with a focus on enemies on those who would seek to harm us, especially those who try to hurt us because we're following Jesus. We get one verse on that. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul shifts back to how we care for each other, especially to being unified with each other. We get two verses on that. And then in verse 17, Paul comes right back to talking about enemies and, he, and how we should respond to them. And that carries through the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> so all in all, the whole text, you know, 15 plus commands, it's about being unified with each other and being gracious towards those who don't like us. 
who might even try to hurt us. Okay. Now, now, let's settle in for a few minutes on, on each of these ideas. Okay, so we'll start with the verses that focus on life within the church. I think this is verses 15 and 16. Okay, look at verse 15 first. Very common, this is even in our church covenant. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What what should we hope others would see about our church? And one thing I hope they would see is that when one part of this body is hurting, everybody's hurting. And when one part of this body is rejoicing, everybody's rejoicing. Because we, though many, are one in Christ. Now, as with so many things, like with last week, this isn't to say we shouldn't have a similar attitude toward people outside the church. We should. We should should, uh, care and sympathize with people outside the church, too. We've been experiencing grief, for example, right along with our community over the shooting of a young man here in our community this week. And sharing in that pain and grief is right. And trying to do whatever we can to come alongside a hurting family or a hurting community is good. And that reflects the heart of Jesus. But again, this text, I think, is targeted at life within the church, family. When a sister is rejoicing, we are to rejoice with her. And when a brother is weeping, we are to weep with him. And I think it's worth paying attention to how Paul doesn't simply say to weep with those who weep. He also challenges us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And the reason I highlight that is I think it can be a little easier sometimes, or at least a little more natural to hurt with the hurting than it is to rejoice with the rejoicing. Some people probably are inclined more one to the other. But I think for many of us, it's easier when we see someone sorrowing to come close to them and put an arm around them and, and feel that with them than it is to, to rejoice when something's going awesome in their lives. Christians should do both. Because I've often said here at RBC, life is at its best a mix of joys and sorrows. And Jesus wants to make sure that there is someone right there with you in both situations. Now, what could that look like? Obvious examples of rejoicing together might be how we celebrate, you know, special events, like a wedding, like we have one coming up for Jordan and Emily, and we will celebrate together with them, or we celebrate the birth of a child, or, or a couple bringing their baby to church for the first time, you know, here, like with Cody and him, or, or, or someone getting a job, you know, that's been praying for that. And that's all great, <clears throat> but we shouldn't stop there. As we get to know each other, I hope we also get to know the real burdens of each other's hearts. I hope you know, at least for some of your brothers and sisters, the things that they pray for every day the things that they plead with God for every night. Do you know that about anybody here in the church? I hope that you know, at least for some of your brothers and sisters, the sins that they're fighting week by week. And when God answers one of those prayers for a sister, 
do we really rejoice with her? Or when a brother shares how God gave me grace this week to say no to Satan's temptation, do we rejoice with our brother in that? Or when we hear of God opening a door for the gospel for someone else, do we rejoice with them? And similarly, when the, when does, what does the church family do when we hear that one of our kids is in the hospital? Or when there's a miscarriage? Or when someone's diagnosed with a disease? <clears throat> or what do we do when our sister's weeping over the loss of a loved one? Or when our brother's grieved because his wife just, uh, just doesn't want anything to do with Jesus? We are to put on the Lord Jesus, which is to put on compassion and sympathy. And one thing the church should never do is we should never leave our brother or sister to weep and to sorrow alone. This is Christian culture. Verse 16, then, is the other verse in the section about life within the church. Verse 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty or proud but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And that's classic Paul about church life. It's the call to unity. And as Paul does in almost every call to unity, it's coupled with a warning about pride and a call to humility. Because pride destroys unity. Humility is the only path to unity. Where you've got proud people, you will not have unity. Guaranteed. Humility is the only way there. We already saw some of this earlier, like in in chapter 12, when Paul said we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And here Paul challenges us with similar things. Don't be proud. Associate with those of low position. Never be wise in your own estimation. Now, I I think this idea probably jives pretty well in our own culture, at least in theory. This but this concept here would be very countercultural in the Roman society. For example, masters did not associate with slaves. The rich did not mingle with the poor. Women and children were of low social status and significance. The dividing lines were strong and they were based especially on class and social status. And Paul wanted none of that in the church. God wants us all to look at each other through gospel eyes. We are all sinners. We are all equal. We are all saved by grace through faith in the same Lord Jesus. We, though many, are one body in Christ. The people around you are not just your fellow human beings. We should look at one another and say, these are my brothers and sisters. These are the very people Jesus bled for. And this keeps us humble. And humility keeps us united. And this is Paul's vision for the Christian community. Now I want to look at the other part of the study. This is kind of what this text is known for. We consider the, the second big idea of this section, which is how Christians are called to treat those outside the church who mistreat them. Okay, so on this, look at verse 14 first. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Now that's, that's hard. Okay. Two things come to mind initially when I think about this. One, this as well was completely countercultural in the Roman world. We could add on this one that this is also very much against the grain in our own, in our own day. The desire for revenge, to get back at those who hurt us, is very natural. And it was not just natural in the Roman world. <laughs> this was honorable in the Roman world. <clears throat> you can find that in ancient stories like Homer's Odyssey or something like that. You can find this in ancient philosophers. I came across this quote from Aristotle this week I thought was interesting. Just listen to what he says about revenge. He says, to take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble. And furthermore, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. See, Paul is calling for something radical here in this verse and in what is to come. And that leads into my second observation about this, is that this teaching is clearly rooted in Jesus, in his own teaching and ethic. Okay? Paul is simply reflecting Jesus' words here, like those that we read, uh, that Chase read for us from Luke chapter 6. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Or in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it this way. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and what? And hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And of course, we could add to this that this was not simply what Jesus taught. Jesus modeled this in his life and especially in his death. I mean, how can we not think of how he prayed for his persecutors while he was hanging on the cross? How instead of calling down God's curse on them, he bore the curse instead. See, when we put on this kind of thinking, we are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to think through this just a little more, notice how Paul says twice to bless those who want to hurt you. And the second time he adds, and make sure you don't curse them. We should all, now I want to, I want to think through this, okay? <clears throat> we should always remember that when we are mistreated, or maligned, or slandered as Christians, that God cares deeply about that. We should not look at texts like this and think like Christian ethic is just don't act as if it doesn't happen, or, or like as if it shouldn't, you shouldn't care about it or God doesn't care about it. Like God cares very deeply about it when you are hurt as his child. God cares about it. He is our Father. He cares more about his kids than I care about my children when they are mistreated. I mean, that's, that's a, an amazing thought of God's care for his children. Jesus loves us as his own body. I mean, I think even in, in Paul's life, what's the first thing Jesus said to him. Do you remember this? This is on the road to Damascus to go and hurt Jesus' people. And what does Jesus ask? 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is one with his people and he feels their pain and he cares about it. Okay? So we should remember it is no small matter to God when his children suffer at the hands of evil people. And remembering that helps me realize just how powerful this text is. Because, because we know how much God cares about us, we could certainly ask the Lord in our prayers to bring down severe judgment on our enemies. Like, and, and think God would be inclined to do that because God cares about this and he cares about us. I mean, God hates it when his children are harmed, so we could pray for this. But yet Paul's call in this text is for the church to do something else. In their prayers, he challenges us to ask God to bless our enemies and not to curse them. He challenges us to follow in the steps of the Lord, Jesus. Then after two verses on the church together, like in verses 15 and 16, Paul comes back to this and develops his thought. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So Paul's concerned again with how we treat those who mistreat us. And here he's also concerned with how we live among outsiders, like how this looks and how, what our testimony is like. So first he says, repay no one evil for evil. Okay, so when someone does something evil to you, how do you feel? You feel bad, angry, right? Why? Why do you feel that way? Not even saying it's wrong to feel that way. How do you feel? Why do you feel that way? Because evil hurts. That's why we feel that way. But then, so what do we naturally want to do in return? We want to repay them. And then we ask, why do we want to repay them? One, we might think, because they deserve that. They do. If they did something really, truly evil to you and hurt you, your natural tendency is going to be to want to repay them. Why? Because they deserve it. And there's, after all, they did evil. Second, we also might say, because doing that makes me feel better, at least for a little while. But let's chase that a little further. So someone does something evil to us. It hurts. We naturally want to repay them. With what? What do we naturally want to repay them with? We want to repay them with whatever it was that they did to us. I don't think we'd say we naturally want to repay them with good. We naturally want to repay them with similar evil to what they threw at us. And here's where I think there's a a lot of overlap between the culture in the Roman world and our own culture. There is a real tendency in our day to think that doing that is okay. What I mean is it is often assumed that truly being wronged by someone gives us the license to do something back to them that we otherwise would have called evil. Or put another way, there was a tendency in Paul's day 
and in our day too, to justify doing something evil on the basis that something evil was done to you. But in Paul's thinking, when you go that route, you no longer have one evildoer and one good doer in the situation. You now have two people participating in evil. Because he says, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, he says, give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And he's getting at things like, don't be dragged down by someone else to engage in their dishonorable tactics. Instead, think carefully about how to live honorably in the sight of everyone. And as much as possible, as much as it depends on you, seek peace. Pursue it. And it's obvious from how he words that, how he words that, that Paul knows peace isn't always going to be possible because peace always takes more than one party. Paul knows the other party may simply not allow for peace. But he says to Christians, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Christians love and pursue peace. And in both commands, you can see Paul's concern is also for the reputation of Christians in the broader community. <clears throat> he wants us to live honorably and peaceably in the sight of all. And this fits well with Jesus' own ethic that we want to live this way so that our light shines before others, so they see our good works and glorify God. Now, before we go further, I want to I pause to clarify one thing. This does not mean that it would be wrong, for example, for a Christian to, let's say, call local authorities if someone has committed a crime against us. Or for a Christian to report that someone has harmed a child or something like this, okay? As if we might think that <clears throat> that's repaying the person. Okay? Paul's concern is don't repay evil for evil. Doing that kind of thing is not evil. In fact, if you glance down to Romans 13, you'll see that in the very next text, Paul is clear that God himself has instituted governing authorities for the very purpose of bringing down his judgment on evildoers in this age. What Paul is concerned about here is not repaying evil for evil, and as he goes on, not taking that responsibility into our own hands. Because look at verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. <clears throat> so as you start to put the whole text together, you can, see, you can see the kind of culture Paul's trying to build when it comes to how Christians deal with those who want to harm them. Christians bless those who persecute them. They don't repay evil for evil. They don't resort to underhanded tactics to get back at people. Christians pursue peace <clears throat> as much as it depends on them. And here in verse 19, Christians leave vengeance to God. Paul says, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. <clears throat> For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this text is a call to us all to never seek revenge. 
I, I came across something from a famous Chinese military leader. He said, before you embark on a journey of revenge, you should first dig two graves. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. There's a lot of wisdom in that. But, and we think about that sometimes, that revenge consumes us and destroys us too. But Paul doesn't actually focus on that, though I think he would agree with that. Instead, Paul reminds us of something else in this text that many people today have forgotten, which is that all wrongs will be dealt with justly by God. God is not indifferent toward the unjust suffering of anyone that he's made. And if that's true of everyone he's made, how much more can we say that's true of God's children? Who, who God has bought through the blood of Jesus. God is not indifferent to the unjust suffering of his people. It is written, vengeance is God's. He will repay. So this text is a warning to us not to take into our own hands what we cannot handle. But this is also a reminder to us that someone will right the wrongs. God himself will repay. But Paul's not quite finished yet. He's got this one proverb from the book of Proverbs that he wants to add to this. Verse 20, he says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now that fits right along with Jesus, as well as that call to bless and not curse. But I think it's important to, to know, like, you see that in quotes because that's from the book of Proverbs. From cover to cover in the Bible, you'll find that the right to revenge does not belong to us. This is not just a New Testament thing. It's not like the Old Testament <laughs> promoted revenge. It didn't. Cover to cover in the Bible, we learn about revenge. It's not our right. And it's not our role. Instead, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. Even back in the law code, if your enemy's donkey is like stranded or something, hurry, help him. Help the donkey. Why? <laughs> because it says, by so doing, you'll heap what? Burning coals on the head. What does that mean? This is notorious for being hard to interpret. There's all kinds of thoughts about the background of this. This proverb. What, what do you think? You'll heap burning coals on the head of someone if you, if you give them kindness when they might expect evil. Okay, that last line, I would go along with the majority of writers on this, that the point is probably that by doing such unexpected acts of kindness, you'll be heaping something like shame on the person who's being unjust toward you. In other words, the more and more kindness you show in the face of injustice, the more and more burning shame falls on the head of the unjust. And I think there may even be hope that the shame will be so intense that it may well lead them to repentance. But no matter what the exact interpretation of that is, Paul leaves us with a very clear final word in the text in verse 21. <clears throat> Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Evil has never and will never stop evil. 
evil can only be overcome by good. As one of the earliest writers on Romans, a guy named Origen said, I'm paraphrasing a bit, he said, fire cannot extinguish fire. Darkness cannot dispel darkness. Fire is extinguished by water. Darkness is put to flight by light. And the call on Christ's people is to stop the cycle of evil for evil and to overcome evil with good. And it's that idea I just want to think about as we close today. Okay, sadly, I, I, I think we can all say that there have been times when we have all contributed to the cycle of evil for evil by repaying evil to someone only to have them then send it right back at us. But what I want us to think about a different aspect. I wouldn't be surprised if you've also been on the receiving end of the positive side of this at some point. Perhaps in your marriage or with a sibling or a parent or a friend or maybe even a child. Perhaps you can think back to a time where you had it in your heart to keep on giving evil for evil, to keep on adding fuel to the fire, to keep on sending back harsh words. And then there was an act of kindness that you didn't see coming from that other person, that refusal to repay you evil for evil. And if that's ever happened to you, you probably remember it. Why? Probably because it made you feel really, really low and small. But it was also probably the thing that led to reconciliation. That's the power of kindness. Only good can triumph over evil. And even if you can't remember a story like that in your life lately, don't forget you have experienced the reconciling power of kindness in the cross of Christ, where God did not repay us, his enemies, with evil. Instead, God overcame our evil with his kindness. And on that, I'm reminded of a precious gospel text from just earlier in Romans, where Paul says, kids are memorizing this right now, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good man one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul goes on to say that while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. God was not kind to us because we were first kind to him. God was kind to us when we were still his enemies. And it was indeed God's overwhelming, unearned kindness to us that overcame our sin and our hostility toward him. If, if, you, if you know Jesus, it is largely due to the amazing grace of God and that it overcame your hostility toward the Lord. You couldn't believe that God would love you like this, that he would show you such kindness that you did not expect and you certainly did not deserve. And so may God help us to think like God thinks about each other and even about those who've hurt us. 
And may God help us to extend the kind of love and blessing that God himself extends both on the just and the unjust. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words and would you stir our hearts, Lord, with this as we remember your love for us? And would you help us, Lord, to love one another, to welcome one another, to live in harmony with each other? But then, Lord, help us with the people that may have come to our minds today that we're still struggling with because they've hurt us. I pray that you would help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you'll give us grace from your Holy Spirit to bless and not to curse and to wait for you to act, to not take into our own hands what we can't handle, but to leave these things to you. And Lord, I pray that we'll be able to help one another even, as maybe things like this remind us of sad things that have happened in our, in our lives. And Lord, if that's the case, I pray we'll find brothers and sisters here who might weep with us as we weep. And I pray as well that as we experience this joy from your hand, Lord, that we'll rejoice with one another, that we will be the kind of Christian community that you have saved us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.